Welcome to the Read, Talk, Grow podcast, where we explore women's health topics through books. In the same way that books can transport us to a different time, place, or culture, Read, Talk, Grow demonstrates how books can also give a new appreciation for health experiences and provide a platform from which women's health can be discussed. At Read, Talk, Grow, we use books to learn about health conditions in the hopes that we can all lead happier, healthier lives. I'm your host, Dr. Denise Milstein. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic in Arizona, where I practice women's health, internal medicine, and integrative medicine. I am always reading, and I love discussing books with my patients, my professional colleagues, and now with you. I am so excited about today's guests. My first guest is Linda Villarosa. She's a journalist, educator, and a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine. She covers the intersection of health and medicine and social justice. She's a journalist in residence and professor at the Craig Newmark School of Journalism at CUNY and teaches journalism, medicine, and black studies at the City College of New York. Her latest book, which is part of a large body of work, is Under the Skin, and it was published in June of 2022. Linda, welcome to the show. Thank you. I like seeing the book with post-its. <laughs> Lots of book tags in this one. I hope we get to touch all of them. My second guest is Dr. Amal Starling. Dr. Starling is an associate professor of neurology at Mayo Clinic in Arizona, She's a graduate of Drexel University College of Medicine and is residency and fellowship trained in neurology and headache neurology at Mayo Clinic. She's an expert in concussion and headache, particularly in women. She educates medical students, residents, and really all of us, including the faculty, including a recent grant-supported program to eliminate racism by hosting Harriet Washington for Grand Rounds and directing a book club focused on the book, Medical Apartheid. Dr. Starling, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me and really a pleasure to be on here with you, Linda. Same. So Amal, let's talk about medical apartheid because we'll probably spend the whole episode talking about under the skin. But when we asked Linda for some recommended books, medical apartheid definitely came up on her list. Tell us about your project and how that went. First of all, I know you mentioned that we're content experts and by no means would I ever say that I am a content expert in racism and topics of diversity, equity and inclusion, but what I am is a lifelong learner in this topic. And then I was thinking about it and I was thinking I also what I learn I want to try to implement and I want to try to enact change with that. So with medical apartheid, it actually started with my colleague, Dr. Rashmi Hawker Singh. She and I are a part of a Facebook group of women's neurologists across the nation. On that, a book club was initiated with medical apartheid, and it was such a rich experience. We wanted to bring it back to Mayo Clinic. And so we applied for this grant to eliminate racism here at Mayo Clinic, and we're able to receive that. And through social media, Dr. Hawker Singh was able to communicate with Harriet Washington, and we were able to invite her to come to give grand rounds. It was just an amazing experience to have her here. 
But what was also really important is that we were able to bring that back to our department and then larger out to Mayo Clinic and do this book club where we were able to go through, especially in department neurology, we actually split it up into three sessions, which worked perfectly with the book because it's um, split up into kind of thirds and review it as a group. And number one, it exposed people to a lot of things that we should have known, but we don't know. We did not learn these things in medical school, and we have not learned these things in continuing medical education, highly relevant to what we do on a day-to-day basis. And so it was really good to provide that education, but it was also a book club that had a lot of silence and a lot of reflection. I feel like it brought us together as a department. And even when we did the larger book club with people that we didn't know, I felt the same way that it just brought this sense of connection and this sense of let's create a team of people sprinkled throughout Mayo Clinic to enact change. I participated in the larger book club and I felt like with every section of the book, I thought, how did I not know this? How have I been so ignorant to this? And Linda, you've brought under the skin to really shine light on what we don't know about healthcare and the racism that exists still within it. Well, first, I'm really impressed with what you're doing. Harriet Washington, I consider her a mentor. She is a forerunner to the work that I do. And um, she actually, when I was at Essence Magazine, she was one of my writers. And so I really appreciate that and all that she has to offer you. So I was at a conference earlier this year. I'm fellowship trained in integrative medicine. So it was the National Integrative Medicine Congress. And our first kickoff speaker was Dr. Michelle Morse, who's the chief health officer for New York City. And she was talking about the correction for Black patients with GFR, which is the kidney function glomerular filtration rates, and how that came to pass. And how it's been applied for decades to the effect of delaying diagnosis of kidney disease in black patients, such that when they are diagnosed, they're diagnosed so late that they are much more likely to go on dialysis. Linda, this is just one example and you bring the same example up uh, later in your book, but I was floored how I never stopped to think about why is that correction factor there? I was telling my editor at the New York Times Magazine about that. And she it was like, wait, that still exists. And I had had a kidney function test maybe three weeks before and I held it up to her. And I said, see, there's a, a black calculation and a white calculation. And you see the black calculation is circled on my sheet. If you look into it, it goes by the false idea that black people have more muscle mass as a group, as a race, have more muscle mass so that we secrete more creatinine. And then it changes the way that our reading happens for kidney function. And I'm like, wait a minute, I am the tiniest person ever. I definitely do not have more muscle mass than the average anybody. So it's strange that it's stuck around this long. And you can see there's debates about it in sort of medical societies and at medical schools, but it's still there. So it's important for us to be aware of it and to understand that, you know, it is something that really 
is not effective. I'm teaching pre-med this semester, and I had my pre-medical students analyze <laughs> that as a group. And it was really interesting what they came up with. And, you know, most of them said, wait, this is how it came about. This seems strange. Why is this still here? But I doubt they would have questioned it if I hadn't brought it up. Although I think what's great in that section is how you mentioned that it was questioned by a trainee, I forget if it was a student or a resident, but a, I think it was a medical student that questioned it and then enacted change. And, and I agree with you. We've seen that here at Mayo Clinic as well, that our medical students are the ones that have actually participated in a lot of change, whether it be in the curriculum. And the beauty is that we've been able to take that and not just apply it to the medical school, but then elevate that to graduate medical education that then actually requires training of the program director, so the faculty, so we can provide that. But you're right, a lot of this is coming from the trainees rather than coming from a top-down approach. I think that's super interesting. And a lot of medical students, interns, and residents came through the system, the educational system, during the time of Black Lives Matter movement. And so they were sort of radicalized. They became active, young activists. And then they took that same energy into medical school. So you see, even though it feels unfair that I know, you know, y'all know how hard medical school is. So to be trying to enact change and push against your administration and your professors is difficult, but I'm excited that it's happening. Yeah, I honestly feel like that passion that they bring is a part of their wellness. Um, I think it's, you know, if you're only doing medicine, that can really break you down. But if you're passionate about something, it really brings in a piece of meaning. And so a lot of the medical students have really taken that on as their mission, which is um, nice to see, although I recognize that it's then important for us to take that baton and move it forward. Let's start at the beginning. So let's talk about maternal and fetal health, which is so important. Here is a fact from your book that I'll read directly. College-educated Black mothers are more likely to die, almost die, or lose their babies than white mothers who haven't finished high school. And your book talks a lot about how many people want to equate race with socioeconomic status, but that is not accurate, that this is an independent risk for mothers. And I knew that already. I knew that uh, as far as many um, racial health disparities. But when I saw that statistic, and the one I saw was even more dramatic, it was simply about maternal mortality. And uh, no, it was simply about um, severe maternal morbidity. And it said that a Black woman with a master's degree, a PhD, an MD, or a JD is more likely to almost die during pregnancy and childbirth than a white woman with an eighth grade education. So that's what got me interested in this topic and to write uh, my 2018 cover story, Why America's Black Mothers and Babies Are in a Life or Death Crisis. Because without a doubt, that statistic tells you, wait, you cannot just blame people, women, for their own issues that happen during pregnancy and childbirth, and you cannot blame Black culture. Yeah, you know, what I was really struck by in that is, you know, as you can probably already tell, I'm a very solution oriented person. So I was like, okay, here is all this data, but are there groups of people who have been able to make change? And then you talk about, I think there was 
a group that was in Louisiana, there was, you know, a group in California that put in all of these um, different sets of awareness and education. And there was change in the numbers, but that it unfortunately continued to have that racial divide. It was like one of those things where you were like building it up. And I was like, yes, this is great. This is awesome. We can upscale this. And then I was like, oh no, we still didn't get to the root of the matter. Well, it was interesting because that story started out simply as a solution story. It was about how doulas can really help women uh, during the pregnancy and birth. My editor said, well, no, you have to go back and figure out why this is happening in the first place. Why are we the only wealthy country where the number of birthing people who die or almost die related to pregnancy and childbirth is going up? That doesn't make sense in our country where we spend so much money on healthcare. And then I remember that somebody that I interviewed said, we can't doctor our way out of this. And I, that stuck with me. And in California, they did try to doctor their way out. And it made a difference. It made a difference to change what happens to birthing people in the hospital setting. But it mostly affected white women and to some extent Latinx women. So then I was impressed that the state of California, a Black-led legislation that's now you have to, if you are working with a pregnant person and birthing person, you have to go through some kind of anti-racism training. That happened pretty recently, and it was right before COVID, so we don't know how well it's worked yet. Then the state took a step further and said, as part of continuing medical education for all healthcare providers, you have to go through some kind of training. The question is, what is the training? How involved is it? How valuable and beneficial is it? But I'm impressed with the state that it made, you know, it made movement. I looked for a solution and it didn't just look for a solution that was about technology, spending more money or sort of doctoring our way out of this situation. Or simply telling women to just take better care of themselves. The answer is not as simple as eat better and exercise more. While those things are very important, that is not the solution either. Can you talk about weathering? Well, first I wanna say that Dr. Aline Geronimus is someone who I really respect, a mentor, and I just finished her book on weathering, which is coming out in March. So you have to have her back on when, she, when her book comes out. So weathering is a concept that Dr. Geronimus has been looking at for 40 years since she was an undergrad at Princeton. I looked at that because that was a reason to help explain why women across class lines, uh, black women across class lines would have these poor birth outcomes. The concept is quite simple. It's that hard coping against discrimination harms your body because when you there's an insult or there's something traumatic happens to you, your body goes right into fight or flight and the systems become kind of on fire. So your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up, your cortisol hormones are increased. And that makes a lot of sense in isolation. But when it happens over and over and your body is too, that's happening too often to your body, it creates a kind of accelerated aging, which Dr. Geronimus, she's at the University of Michigan, calls weathering. And I like the word because it has a twofold meaning. It talks about weathering on the body the way a storm might weather a house. It um, knocks off the shingles, it breaks the windows, it chips the paints. 
But the dual purpose of weathering is that we weather this storm. We're still here. We have family, we have kinship, we have community, we have love. And that makes it so that we can weather the storm of the lived experience of being a person of color, especially a black person in America. And Dr. Geronimus takes it a step further because I asked her, is this like, this is a black thing? <laughs> and she said, no, this is anyone who's harmed. It can happen to. And she suggested that, why don't you look into what's happening to people in Appalachia? where you know it's mostly white folks who have had a really hard time there and have very poor health outcomes. And I did that. And I went back to her and I said, well, I went there <laughs> and you're right. And what I noticed was anyone I interviewed looked much older than their age that they eventually shared with me. And I just thought, for me, I'm a per, you know, I'm not a physician or a scientist, I'm a journalist and observation is my best skill. And I just kept looking at the people thinking, why do they have these kind of diseases that hit people much later? One, they have opioid problems. You know, they, there is an epidemic there. But what I noticed was people having strokes and heart disease and diabetes when they were in their 40s and 50s. And that struck me. And it sort of confirmed for me that idea of weathering. Yeah, for me, um, I have sticky notes and highlighting all over that part because it really spoke to me as a headache medicine specialist where the vast majority of my patients have chronic migraine. And I always talk to patients. I've never known this term of weathering. I might actually work that into my conversations with patients, but I always talk to patients about how they have so many different things going on that make their body feel like they're being chased by a bear and their fight or flight is on. And that is really hard on the body. And it's really hard on the chronic pain systems in the body. Because if you were actually being chased by a bear, you want to be sensitive to light, sound, smell, pain, because that would help survival. But for you to do that 24 seven day after day after day, that really affects the brain. And so this is a conversation I literally have every day, multiple times a day with my patients. So I loved that intersection that I found. And then it also, again, made me think this is a more nuanced conversation that I will need to have with my patients who are people of color, or who are immigrants, who are marginalized in some way, maybe from LGBTQT population. So somehow marginalized populations will obviously have that higher weathering and risk of chronic pain conditions. That's super interesting. And I'm really glad you're putting that into practice. Dr. Geronimus's new book has a lot of solutions to it. Many of them are highly political, but also some of them are personal. It's just just lean into those networks and systems of support, which I think is super important to you, to all of us, and especially when you're talking to patients. Somewhat related is mental health and what an important topic that is and how systemic racism has really affected how Black people have been treated, uh, higher diagnoses of schizophrenia, for example, criminalized versus being treated medically. And then one that I think is probably underrecognized and very pertinent to our listeners is eating disorders and how underrecognized they are in Black women. In my book, I chose the narrative of Audrey Brienne, who was who she and I went to college together, but I didn't know the story until later. And she had an undiagnosed eating disorder. She, like me, grew up in Denver in a predominantly white community. 
because she was black, no one thought she could have a eating disorder, but she, it was really underrecognized. Finally, she did get diagnosed. She ended up going to college later. She had bipolar disorder. So she had a, a sort of a buildup of mental health concerns that went underdiagnosed and underrecognized and that she was able to hide because eventually her job was as a Hollywood stylist. She was one of the few black women in this business at that level. And she was hiding all of her emotional pain. She was also drinking. She ended up at the point of suicide. Luckily that didn't happen and she got treatment, but I was very struck by how much she was trying to be a so-called superwoman or a strong black woman. And that was something that we covered back in the days when I was in at Essence. And we did a story about that, of how it feels like pain is just part of your existence and you try to hide it because of the image of Black women being always strong. I was very interested in this story and it really struck me. I sort of gendered that chapter. And on the male side, I talked about the intersection of policing and criminalization and Black men and mental illness. I focused on Mark McMullen, who was a family friend of mine until after years and years and years of struggle with mental illness and substance abuse that were connected. He was murdered by the police in Boston. I talked to his mother yesterday and she said, thank you so much for talking about Mark's story because it always just looks like he was a thug or a criminal, but he was really suffering and he wasn't treated well. And she said, I am in still too much grief to read the chapter, but I'm glad you wrote about him. Yeah, you know, I was just at a conference this weekend um, that's to inspire neurology residents to enter the field of headache medicine. And one of the talks that I give was about headache diagnosis, and it really centered about listening to the patient, listening to their journey, listening to their story, hearing them and believing them, believing what they say. An interesting question came up. Where I work, we have a lot of patients that are coming from the prison. So how do you believe them? We're in the business of believing people. We treat pain conditions. We don't see it. There's nothing we see. This is an invisible disease of abnormal brain function. And it doesn't matter if someone is coming as a CEO of Walmart or um, the CEO of Mayo Clinic or coming from the prison. Um, we should have no biases about the journey that they're telling us. But it really speaks to that of those biases and assumptions and how that's going to impact this individual's migraine care because there's already people thinking, well, they're not going to tell me the truth because they're in jail. Mm, that is so deep. That's really good that you're saying that to providers and future providers. It's really important that people are listened to regardless of where they come from. And that's the job. Yes. So that's so great what you're doing. We see that through the book too, this concept of a medical neglect, the woman who had triplets and was hemorrhaging and was nearly passing out when the emergency services arrives and treats her as if she has taken a substance without respect, without really uh, recognizing the severity of what was going on there. What's mostly sad about that too, everything is sad, but also that what if she was taking a substance? She should still be treating with dignity and respect. And I think that sometimes in these discussions, we forget about the different levels of issues that 
you know, can come up. So it's not just in the hospital or in a clinic. It also is in EMS, which is part of the healthcare system. I was very moved where I got two really good reviews on Under the Skin. One was in the New York Times um, book review, and it was by a woman who I don't know, but I know of her. She's a very wonderful writer. And in the middle of the review, she shared her own experience, traumatic experience having birth. And at the end, she said, even though she felt like she had done everything right, including my previous articles, she still felt like it was her fault that her birth didn't go as expected. The second review was in the Washington Post, and it was, again, a really high-level writer reviewing the book. And in the middle, he told about his wife, who was treated so badly by the EMS, and she had a stillbirth. And a stillbirth is always a tragedy, but then on top of it, to be treated as though you're faking, drug-seeking, something like that, is doubly bad. And I was very moved by, you know, I think... I'm a very evidence-driven writer. That's what I care about. I care about research, but I also care about narratives. And at some point, this pileup of people's narratives and storytelling and sharing becomes an, a second form of evidence. Yeah, you know, I, I talk a lot about stigma in migraine and chronic pain and about how when you're exposed to that external stigma, and it's also a genetic disease. So often people that I treat with migraine had a mother who had migraine, right? And so they grow up in this world of externalized stigma that they see that their mother may have faced. And then they naturally internalize that stigma, which is why in our disease state, like 80% of people with migraine don't even talk to a doctor about their symptoms. And that really kind of correlates with the fact that it's not about blaming people of color and, and Black people about not seeking health care, but it's that internalized stigma of they're just going to blame me or it's, you know, they're just going to say it's not a problem or my kidney function is fine or whatever it might be. They've internalized that, but that really still is as a result of all the racism that they have experienced generationally and that's been passed down from the moment they're newborns, right, or even the moment of conception. I was in this conversation yesterday about respectability, how, you know, as Black people, we often go into the healthcare system dressed up or trying to be look professional and sound professional, code switching when we're talking to healthcare providers. And part of that is you don't want to seem too hysterical, you know, because then it's sort of like, oh, that's just a hysterical person, perhaps drug seeking out of control. But then when you're trying so hard to be respectable, you may be minimizing your actual pain and feeling which is what my mother does. And she, I, now I just let her tease me. She said, you have such low pain tolerance. I said, oh yeah, mom, I get that you think that, but, but actually if you're more like me, then maybe you're telling the truth about what's going on with your body so you can get the kind of treatment that you know we're trying to seek here. And it's an interesting balance being a black person in the healthcare system of how you are supposed to behave in order to just get care. And that adds to the weathering, right? Exactly, exactly. It's exhausting. You tell that story really beautifully when your father was ill and your mother was dressed like the CEO of the hospital. She had actually been in hospital leadership and you came dressed as a career woman and literally showed your father's advanced degrees and said, this man withering in front of you deserves your respect and can understand what you're saying to him. So please speak to him in a way that, is respectful and honors that he has that background. 
it was so sad. My dad was a very dignified person. He is mild mannered. He's kind of quiet. So to see him, it, he was very angry. He was really upset. He had restraints on his body. It was only because he was also trained as a scientist. So he could understand if, you know, he was scared. If he was speak, spoken to with kindness and respect, he would not have been behaving that way. But even if he was, he shouldn't have been treated that way. They, there's some certainly another way to talk to him. And I don't like to sort of pull out the middle class respectability card, which my mother and I had to do, but it was the only thing that we felt we had. And to fast forward, I went to speak at the University of Colorado School of Medicine a few weeks ago. And I noticed that the people were really kind to me. They were like, are you okay? And they were sort of, some, one of the women was holding my hand and I'm thinking, what's going on here? And then I looked around and there were army barracks. And I realized that the veterans hospital where my father had been, had been transformed into this medical campus where I was. And I didn't realize it until they told me. And I did have just a little bit of a reaction to say, oh my God, this was the site of what happened to my father and my mother and me. But it was also really fulfilling to go back, tell the story and sort of see the interest in this topic happen at this medical school, which, you know, was not a good place for my father years ago. Maybe an area of how racism affects health that is under-recognized but comes out so strongly in your book is environmental racism, the impact of where we live on how healthy we are. Can you talk about that? The first story I ever did on that topic was at Essence. And I went to a town in Louisiana that was, I mean, clearly the people were sending me photos of themselves. They all had rashes. I mean, almost hundred percent of the children had asthma. They had all these problems. And I remember that they were always told that they weren't taking good care of themselves. So I went there and there was a huge refinery that they were living near. There was no chance of anything happening to change that. The suggestion to them was just move, move away. This was a town that was founded by enslaved people and the people had been there for generations. So then fast forward, I did a story for the New York Times Magazine years later, just a few years ago, on a similar town in a similar neighborhood in Philadelphia that was right butting against a, the largest refinery on the East Coast, in a, and it was right in the middle of the city. And again, the people were, t so many kids had asthma. I went to the school the nearest elementary school, the nurse was saying, oh, there's so many children with asthma. And I said, oh, how do you take care of them? And she opened a cabinet and alphabetized were all the asthma inhalers of the children. But it was so interesting because when there was a protest, people were screaming, if you don't like this place, move away. But the people had, the refinery was there first, the city, because it was a redlined area, because of the refinery, the people put pub the city put public housing there. So people moved into public housing, and then they dug their way out of public housing by working and getting jobs and pooling their money together. They bought houses, but of course they wanted to buy homes that were in the area where all their friends and family were. So they were still near this refinery that was taking no responsibility 
for the poisoning that was happening. And it was also extremely hard to prove. And that was the hard part. When I was working on that story and also the chapter in my book that's on environmental racism, environmental justice, it's very hard to prove a cause and effect between the pollution that comes from the facility and the poisoning of the people. I did my best. And certainly there's a lot of people who are on the ground working, including at Drexel, where you went. Sherelle Barber is at Drexel. Her father is Reverend Barber of the Poor People's Campaign. And they are doing a very interesting work around environmental justice and sort of figuring out how to prove the cause and effect. Yeah, I think it's so important for us as physicians and clinicians to consider the environment that people are living in and the social determinants of health before we give our plethora of advice as to what they should do. That was something else that we've been bringing up in you know, conversations that we're having with trainees. Like, yes, we always talk about the lifestyle changes that can be helpful for migraine or for other neurologic diseases. But don't just start with that. Start with learning about the person, learning about their access to green spaces before you tell them to go take a walk every day, learning about their access to grocery stores before you tell them to, you know, have a whole food diet. All these kind of things are so important and really providing those recommendations without knowing where someone is coming from breaks the trust that we have with that patient because the patient walks out of that appointment thinking they don't know me, they don't really care about me, they're not even trying to get to know me and kind of give up on care um, and don't come back for that follow-up visit. I kind of, it worries me and I have kind of a pit in my stomach to know perhaps without my growing awareness, but without that awareness that I may not have had, you know, five, 10 years ago, how many patients for whom did I break trust because of those, you know, missteps that I made? More and more physicians are like you really trying to ask the full, you know, like a full load of questions about the person and not just making those kinds of assumptions. In my book, I shared the story of my mother's community, which is Inglewood in Chicago, where people live to age 60 and nine, nine miles north, they live to age 90. And when we went to that community, I understood why, because the community, my grandparents came from Mississippi to Chicago. And so growing up for my mother and even me for part of my life, it was a place of sparkle. It was a place of success and achievement and uh, grit. And then when I went back, it was a place of erasure. It looked more like rural Mississippi in parts than it did uh, the city of Chicago. I interviewed a couple of physicians, one of the, whom had started a black men's health clinic in the same community that was, you know, where the, because of such poor health outcomes. I said, what happened to your clinic? It ran for a while. He said, I realized that providing health care to people wasn't as helpful as I thought it would be. And he switched to raising wealth, figuring out how to build wealth in the community because even before they got to the clinic, that's when the problem happened because of a lack of healthy air, food, safety, education, all the things that sort of those social determinants of health that make people healthy were missing in that community. So providing healthcare, it turned out at the men's clinic, women were seeking healthcare from that clinic and it wasn't doing you know, what was expected. And I never forgot that because I thought when you have a physician who is saying the connection between health and wealth is so important, but let's focus on the wealth part, that was kind of mind blowing for me. 
Yeah, it gets back to that root cause of that systemic racism that is what perpetuates the disparity in wealth, disparity in health, et cetera. So, I mean, it's the, the racism that we need to address, except besides all these kind of band-aids that we're putting on, which is hard. I mean, I can't imagine to know how to do that, except for increasing awareness, at least to start with. And then the next generation that's coming that really seems to have a lot of people that are activists and, you know, really have high hopes of what they would like to see the world change to. I agree with you. And some of the reason, you know, that I do the work is, I mean, I'm learning, I'm like you, a lifelong learner. And um, what struck me about that story of my mom's community in Chicago was, I mean, I knew it had been redlined, but I didn't understand that it also been subject to contract buying. So about the time that the bulk of people were coming up from Mississippi and Alabama to Chicago and Cleveland and Detroit and places like that, in Chicago specifically, contract buying was in place. So a Black person couldn't get a mortgage and buy a house outright. You had to buy on a contract. And I ran that by my mother and I said, how did grandfather buy that building that he got? And she said, I don't know, it was on some kind of contract. He was always terrified that he would lose it. And so if you can't invest in the community, you can't buy a home outright. And a home is usually the biggest part. You know, that's what you leave your children. That's what you sell to make money. That's the bulk of most Americans, how they make their wealth. And If you can't have that, then it makes the community less healthful because of the lack of wealth. And I just really uh, put those pieces together. I know I wrote a book on this topic and I'm really proud of it, but I feel like I keep learning things that surprise me. I really love how you finish the book with hope. You also have to talk about COVID because, you know, we've just lived through COVID. But if we focus on hope and both of your work in education, one of the concepts is that who treats us matters, that promoting awareness and anti-racism learning among all medical health professional learners is important, but it's also really important to promote and support people of color, people from variety of different backgrounds coming into medical education. I'm really, really psyched this semester at the City University of New York. I'm teaching at the medical school, so my students are pre-med. The first thing I asked them, well, first I took them through, I I realized many of them are first-gen or immigrants, so they don't know everything about the history. They have the basics, but I took them all the way back. I started at 1619 because I was part of the 1619 project. And then I took them all the way through and we went through enslavement, reconstruction, all through history. And, you know, they were really surprised. They knew the basics, but to hear the background, to hear the details of that, they were startled. Then the next thing I said was, tell me about someone in your family or one of your loved ones who has gone through some kind of discrimination in the healthcare system. A hundred percent of them had something something that someone had gone through, if not themselves, and sometimes they're very close relatives. I had a hard talk with them because, and I don't like to, you know, I'm super optimistic and hopeful, and I don't like to erode their optimism, but I said, I cannot leave this class without warning you about some of the racism and discrimination you yourselves might encounter. It might be because you have 
black or brown skin. It might be because you're Muslim. It might be because you speak with an accent, but people are going to question your own medical credentials and you have to be ready. You have to find out how to support yourselves. And I showed them the hashtag. This is what, uh, what a doctor looks like and told them why that exists because there was a black woman physician several years ago who tried to treat a patient who was a person who was having a medical crisis on a plane and she was pushed away because of the disbelief that a black woman could be a doctor. And I warned them of that. And I said, I want you to make sure you go into this profession because I know you, I hear you, I hear that you wanna practice, stay in the communities that you're from and practice and make sure that you're working with marginalized and oppressed people. But I also want you to go in with your eyes open and with your heart ready for a time when you may not be treated as well as expected given how hard you're gonna work to get through medical school. First of all, I wish I could be a learner in one of your classes. I, I would love that. And I think it would be just so enlightening. The other story I wanted to share, actually, is that my, my mom, who's doing quite well right now, but she had breast cancer and was treated here at Mayo Clinic, Arizona. And I remember when she had her mastectomy and we were in the hospital and she and I were walking around the halls at Mayo Clinic to get a little bit of walking in post-op. And she was walking and she was looking at the pictures around and all the pictures were about the Mayo brothers and the nuns and they were all white. And I'd, I mean, I've been here since 2008. I was a trainee here. I've been practicing here since then. You know, I never, it's just history of Mayo Clinic, but my mom turns to me and she goes, I am so lucky and blessed that you work here because otherwise I would have never received care here. And I was like, what? Why would you say that? That's not true. Mayo Clinic serves everyone. And she's like, no, they don't. Look at all the pictures. I got choked up and immediately actually ended up writing an email to the CEO and saying, we need to change the pictures on her walls. It may not seem like a big thing. And I know it's the history of Mayo Clinic and history is important, but it is making people not feel included. The patients don't feel included. They don't feel like they belong. And I shared the story of my mom. And, you know, we have seen a lot of change in the images that we have on our websites and that we have on our walls, but it makes such a big difference to have that representation. And along those lines, like you said, Denise, about representation in the workforce, I just have to plug my dear friend, colleague, and just inspirational role model, Dr. Alex Porter, who has a foundation, Elevate Med. She and her husband have a foundation, Elevate Med, who are doing amazing work of providing scholarships because, again, it's the wealth that impacts the minimal number of people of color who are in medicine, especially Black people and Black men, particularly, who are in medicine. And so she's providing scholarships and opportunities opportunities for people of color, specifically Black people, to enter the medical workforce and really provide that representation. And I think our colleague, Dr. Poole, who now is at Mayor Rochester, has done some work looking at the race and ethnicity of the physician and the race and ethnicity of the patient and how when there is a match, especially in those marginalized populations between that race and ethnicity, that the care, the outcomes, the medical outcomes are better. So just providing so much evidence and then also 
inspirational ways that we can definitely um, support diversifying the healthcare workforce. I mean, I, as a program director, that's the main thing that we're talking about is how can we diversify our next residency class um, so that we can play our role, not only for our, that trainee, but for the patients that we serve. So important. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing that. I really feel like the world is a brighter place because of the two of you and all of the work that you do to bring this to light and also to provide hope and ways that hopefully healthcare will be aware and will change in the future. This has been an amazing conversation. I just want to thank you both for being here, for just being such amazing women doing amazing work and sharing it with the world. Thank you. Um, I took notes during this because I I learned a lot. And so thank you. I really um, love sharing space with you, both of you. So thank you. Thank you very much. I also took notes. So (laughs) thank you for joining us to talk books and health today on Read, Talk, Grow. To continue the conversation and send comments, visit the show notes or email us at readtalkgrow at mayo.edu. Read Talk Grow is a production of Mayo Clinic Press. Our producer is Lisa Speckhard-Pask and our recording engineer is Rick Andreessen. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not designed to replace a physician's medical assessment and judgment. Information presented is not intended as medical advice. Please contact a healthcare professional for medical assistance with specific questions pertaining to your own health if needed. Keep reading everyone.